Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi friends, I'm Tim Whitaker and welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. The New Evangelicals is an inclusive, Jesus-centered community that holds space for people marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and helps you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. This podcast is part of that work, so join us as we talk to people from all walks of life, lending their expertise and wisdom to us as we renegotiate our faith and find better paths forward. What's up, party people? Today, we're talking about our favorite topic, hell. (laughs) What's up, everyone? Hope you're doing well. Welcome back to the podcast. I get this topic all the time. People DM me, how do I think about hell now that I'm deconstructing my faith? Is hell only eternal conscious torment? Are there other ways of viewing hell? And the answer is yes. In the Christian tradition, there are three primary ways of thinking about hell. And unfortunately for all of us who are listening, Our evangelical fundamentalist basement taught us that there's only one way to think about hell, and that is that if you don't pray a prayer and become a true Christian, you're going to burn in hell forever. But my friend Derek Kabilis has a different take on that, and he wrote a book called Holy Hell that is very thought-provoking, talks about a different way of understanding and thinking about hell through the lens of the Christian tradition. I think you're going to enjoy this episode. His book is out now. Make sure you pick it up. Yeah, that's all I really got for this intro. I want to say, of course, friends, thank you so much for being here, for listening to the podcast. If you want to support the work that we do, you can donate via the link in the show notes. All donations made in the U.S. are tax deductible. If you like this show, please share it. It helps us get picked up more into the algorithms of the internets, like the podcast world of Apple and Spotify, all that good stuff. So, all right, friends, without further ado, here's my interview with Derek. Talk to you all later. Hi, my name is Carrie and I live in Kansas and I'm a monthly supporter of the New Evangelicals. I started supporting the New Evangelicals in 2020 when it became clear that the evangelical world that I had been raised in and was a part of was doing more harm than good. Since that time and since following the New Evangelicals, I've appreciated the variety of experiences and opinions that are shared on the platform and I share the concern over the future and the trajectory of the evangelical church. I'm glad I'm able to support this platform and the content as we continue to offer a different voice in contrast to what's being told to us by the evangelical church. Thank you.
All right. Hello, Derek Kabilis. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for making time. I appreciate it. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So we're talking about our favorite topic, hell. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you wrote a book. You wrote a book with Holy Hell. It's, it's called Holy Hell, A Case Against Eternal Damnation. It comes yeah. out in February of 2024, which might you might think, audience, wow, it's so far away. It's actually not. It's like a couple months. <laughs> it's crazy how we're here already. Yeah, it'll go like that. I've been telling people to pre-order it and give a gift to yourself three months in the future. I love that. That is great. Yeah, so make sure you pre-order it. Let's start here. I mean, Derek, give me your background. I can only imagine what goes into the life story of Derek that leads him to say, (laughs) you know what? I'm going to sign with a publisher and write a book called Holy Hell, A Case Against Eternal Damnation. So how, how were you brought up? What's your religious background? Give me the story there. Well, you know, it's it's actually kind of boring, which no. is part of the story. I am a United Methodist clergy person, mm. born and raised in the United Methodist Church. The church I grew up in when I was a teenager was more of an evangelical bent. We have um, a big tent in Methodism, from very conservative evangelicals to like very, very progressive liturgical settings so on and so forth so i grew up you know in this evangelical mind frame but as methodists we don't talk that much about hell i mean i i think a lot of churches don't we we kind of focus on the grace and the love of jesus and all that good stuff but it is in the background somewhere and i discovered that a few years ago so i'm i'm a pastor i was a pastor at a different church back then and they asked me to teach a class on heaven and hell. And I thought, man, I, I really don't have a lot of chops in this, so I need to study it and I need to do some research. Did that, came to the conclusions that you see in the book. And then I discovered that people are absolutely haunted by the idea of a hell of eternal torment. And everyone has a story of someone they knew that passed away, a father, a mother, an uncle, a child sometimes, for whom they have a lot of worry and anxiety about whether or not that person is facing some kind of eternal torment. And that causes a a great deal of static in their spiritual lives. And so I wrote this book. I'm I'm what we would call a a purgatorial universalist. We can get into what what all that means. Oh, we're going Um, to. Yeah, I'm writing that down. (laughs) A purgatorial universalist. Okay, got got it. it. And essentially, I wrote the book to give people permission to have faith that their loved ones are not burning, that they are not going to burn. Essentially, I want to give people permission to listen to that little voice inside of them that says everything is going to be okay. Yeah, um, I'll tell you right now, for most of the audience listening, including myself, that was not what we were taught about hell. I mean, hell was ingrained from the very beginning. I was very young. When I was taught images of, hey, one day, if you don't, you know, become a Christian, essentially fire awaits you, you know, or people who are outside of Christ to just be tormented in hell forever. So it's interesting because I've talked to a lot of guests, a lot. I mean, close to 200 now. And I've noticed this pattern that um, people who 
do not grow up with that at a very young age versus people who might have been introduced to it later on in life, they respond to getting over the fear of hell very differently. Mm. I've met people who will tell me their story. Yeah, I was 19 when I got saved in conservative evangelicalism mm-hmm. and was taught about hell, but I deconstructed it. And it's no big deal compared to, yeah, I was six years old when, when so-and-so Absolutely. sat me down and taught me about the flames of hell. And I still have fear even though I've deconstructed or I I found a more beautiful path in my faith, I still have fear that just maybe when I die, flames await me. So I'm glad we're talking about this because it is perhaps in my experience, one of the most difficult things to renegotiate uh, doctrinally, so to speak, you know, is this idea of hell. And you understand why, like the, the idea of a hell of eternal torment mm-hmm. has undergone 2000 years of evolution to reach its its present form. And it is over that time, it has become psychologically engineered to be the scariest imaginable thing. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Like it is literally designed to tap into the very deepest part of your psyche and just sit there and make you deal with it. And so, like, we talk a lot about deconstruction. It's something that's happening right now, and it's a beautiful thing to watch some of these people rethink the religion as it was handed to them when they were children and all of that. There are some things that don't need to be deconstructed as much as they need to be dismantled. Mm, Yes, that's good. Or even completely blown up. And so I hope my book helps people achieve that. Yeah, I think that's really good. I think that's really wise. And you're right. I mean, that, that's a great way to put it. Yeah, the, we've had a lot of time to really hone in on this scariest thought possible. I mean, even now, we're recording this a few days after Halloween. There are people out there who used to be part of Hell Houses. Do, do, do you know what a Hell House oh, is? Oh, yeah. I went oh, to one yeah, when I was yeah. a teenager. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Right, it, was, right. it was the craziest thing. The craziest I mean, thing. <laughs> I remember I remember a, an abortion scene. Oh, yeah. And the demons took away the woman who had an abortion. And uh, I remember the room at the end where three people quote, gave us the gospel, quote, unquote, although not one word of actual good news escaped their lips that day (laughs) and just made us pee our pants. Right, right, right. Yeah. Okay. So we have the framework. I'm glad that we're on the same page and that you have an awareness of that because a lot of people, you know, some people I've talked to in our spaces now used to run them. They used to be on that side of the person performing that act, right, to scare people because they were convinced that they were doing a good thing. They were saving souls from the depths of hell. Let's start with let's start here with this conversation, right? Mm. Hell. I mean, the, call me evangelical, but I still always think about, okay, well, what's the Bible actually say about hell, right? Because I think for a lot of people, we've been taught at a very early age, well. Whatever the Bible says we have to go by. Now, I think a lot of us sure. might, might have renegotiated that in a lot of different ways. Yeah. But for sake of this conversation, you know, do you talk at all about like the theological or quote unquote biblical texts and how they navigate hell? Any thoughts on that? Yeah. My position is the Bible doesn't say anything about hell, which may be kind of odd because you pull out your Bible and you see hell, you know, every right. page in the New Testament. Right. Hell is a really lazy translation for several different words in Hebrew and Greek, all of which have 
a world of meaning behind them. And when we translated those things into English, essentially what we did is we chose a a Norse word, hell, it comes from Niflhel, or the goddess hell, from Nordic theology. And that's not even a a hot place. It's not a place of torture or anything. It's just kind of like a, a cold underground place where everyone kind of sits until they wait to be reincarnated. Mm. For me, I want American Christians to start looking at the concepts that we use the word hell to talk about, mm. right? In Hebrew, the concept of Sheol. In Greek in the New Testament, the concepts of Gehenna and Hades and Tartarus. And we can parse all of those if you like. I mean, that's where the meaning is. And that's where I think the gospel truth is. Not in this constructed idea that there is a place where people are being tormented forever. Hmm. That that in 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 my interpretation is an after the fact construct that at the time would have sounded really alien to people who were writing the Bible and people who were inhabiting the very first churches. Okay, so just to give us uh, you know a foundation, why don't we just go through those four different words? You said Sheol, sure, uh, um, uh, Hades, yeah, Gehenna, and Tartarus. Why don't you kind of give us like maybe uh, a thesis size overview of like each one and kind of like what what they tend to represent in the biblical narrative? Then we can go from there. Absolutely. Let's start with Sheol in right. Hebrew. Sheol is this really enigmatic place, okay? And you can tell there's something going on behind the scenes here, because even if you look back at, like, the King James Bible, it's not always translated as hell. It pops up in lots of different places in the Old Testament. In some places where it pops up, it sounds bad. There are fires, there is some kind of pain happening, and when that happens the biblical translators use the word hell. There are other places where Sheol isn't bad at all. There are places where Sheol almost sounds like a really good place. And when that happens, the biblical translators, at least in the King James Version, used the term grave or pit. Hmm. A fantastic example of this is from... First Samuel, I think 28, when Saul summons the ghost of Samuel using the witch of Endor. That sounds like Lord of the Rings, but does. He, does. he essentially goes this witch in and she brings Samuel back from Sheol. And you know what Samuel does? Hmm. He complains that he has been disturbed. Now, if Sheol were hell, as we conceive of it today, Would you imagine that Samuel would be complaining? Hmm. Or if you think about Job in Job 14, when he's going through his trials and his life has fallen apart and he's just not doing so great. Right. um, He prays that God would hide him in shield. How can hell be a good hiding place? How can hell be a safe place Hmm. as we understand it today? Or in Psalm 139, the psalmist says, If I make my bed in Sheol, thou art there. So God 
whatever the Sheol place is, God is still there, Hmm. right? These do not run congruent with the idea of a hell of eternal torment. The word hell is just an inappropriate word to use in those instances. If you really want to understand the Old Testament understanding of the afterlife, you really don't have... Sheol is this this like murky idea where for evil people, it seems kind of rough for good or decent or okay people. It seems kind of fine and peaceful. It's all very mysterious, all very shady. If you want an understanding of the Hebrew idea of the afterlife from the Hebrew scriptures, you have to look at Abraham and Lot. There's a scene in Genesis 24 where Abraham tells Lot to stick his hand under his thigh and swear an oath. And over the years, I've heard a lot of different interpretations of why he did that. The one that I found most convincing comes from, I believe, Ellen Davis, who said, actually, what's happening there is Lot is cupping Abraham's genitals, wow. his, uh, his testicles. And the idea is, is that he's swearing an oath on his progeny. And that's what counts as eternal life. That's how they live on as far as they know. You don't really get the afterlife as we think about it today until the year 164 BC when the book of Daniel is circulated. Hmm. So that's how I would talk about Sheol. That, that's really helpful. I, I, I've never heard of it explained just that way. Again, I think it's important for the audience to know that that maybe some of these terms that we were given through a particular framework aren't the only way to think about them. And maybe, in fact, it's not even the healthiest way to think about them. So that's why I have folks like you on the podcast help us unpack that. So, okay, that's one down. We got three more to go. Uh, go. Let's go over to, uh, let's do Gehenna. That's a very popular one. I've heard yeah. people like Rob Bell in the past say, well, Gehenna was a physical place where they burned garbage. Then I heard other scholars say, nah, it probably wasn't that either. So I'm like, okay, I would love to hear your thoughts on this. You know, Gehenna, what is that yeah. in, in the in, in the world of Jesus? The actual the actual place that Jesus is referring to, and, and it's, it's Jesus's favorite of all these words. He uses Gehenna a lot. Yeah. And it is, it, it, it is an actual place. You can go there today. It's outside of the city of Jerusalem. It's a valley. It's a, it has a very nice park in oh, it now, as a matter of fact. Know. You can see it from Pilate's Palace, as a matter of fact. So Gehenna started out as, or the Valley of Hinnom started out as a place where early Canaanites sacrificed children which meant that it was kind of a cursed place. So when we find a place that we want to honor, what do we do? We build a statue, we put up a museum, whatever. What they did back then when there was a place that they wanted to dishonor was they turned it into something like a garbage heap, right? And on the outside of the city, where not only the refuse of the city, but the bodies of poor people and criminals would be dumped 
So there would be dogs. There would always be constant fires breaking out. If, if you've ever lived next to a garbage dump, you know they constantly have to dump water on it because the microbes get really hot and they start fires. So there's all this smoke. It's a dark place. There are people crying. There are dogs that are fighting over the flesh of these people. That is probably what contributes to Jesus calling it the outer darkness when there, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? Okay. The gnashing of teeth is more about growling than it is about kind of smashing your teeth together in pain or anything like that. But over the years, Gehenna took on, seems to have taken on a more spiritualized idea. I'm not sure you can, with any certainty, trace any kind of eternal suffering pointed to that area until way far after Jesus, a couple mm. of centuries. At the time, they just didn't think about eternity that way. Mm. And this is another big thing that kind of rocks people's world that most of the time, well, in fact, any time in the New Testament where you see a reference to this dark thing on the other side of the grave as being eternal, the word is not eternal. I am convinced the word has never meant eternal. The word simply means of the age. It's mm. the word Ionios, mm. and it's referring to the next age. Not in an in infinity of moments, kind of stretching on forever and ever and ever, but uh, a distinct period of time, maybe a long time, maybe a short time, but certainly not an endless period of time. Hmm. Okay. Well, I mean, I, I listen, I, didn't, I told you before we started recording, hey, let's see where the conversation goes. That's kind of how I handle my guests. And I love where this is going because I feel like I'm getting a masterclass here on understanding some terms that I've only had so much understanding about. Um, yeah. So what, would it be safe to say that, you know, just to reiterate that, that, that the, that how Jesus was most likely using Gehenna was not designed at least by him, or at least we can't say this with any kind of certainty was designed to point to like a spiritual afterlife reality of burning forever. And not forever. I, I think he was trying to capture the idea Okay. That something dark, something painful and unpleasant does await some of us, perhaps all of us, on the other side of the grave. But I believe when you, when you read the totality of what Jesus has to say on the subject, that he is pointing to something that is very, very temporary, and that is not this kind of purposeless suffering with no end, where you're never going to escape, abandon all hope, ye who enter here, but is in fact purposeful in that it is rehabilitative. Interesting. It is about cleansing and purification, which is why so many of these passages in the New Testament point, use uh, metallurgical references. So it's almost about like refining metal. Yeah. Even in Revelation, 
when it says, you know, Satan and his demons are going to get thrown into the lake of fire. It's not a lake. It's not a lake. In Greek, it is a pool of fire, which is usually the word that was used for a smelting pool, Hmm. a pool of liquid metal that was being refined. And you've always heard the term fire and brimstone preacher. Yes. You know what brimstone is? Brimstone is sulfur. Sulfur is what you add to silver, to molten silver, to create slag that you can scoop out of it and purify the silver. Mm. What's happening here is not um, punishment for the sake of punishment, but it is something much closer to, and so this gets into my story and perhaps why I resonate so much with this idea. It's, it's much closer to something like rehabilitation. Mm. I lost my leg in the year 2012. My right leg had to be amputated. And I was because I was born with a, a congenital issue with my ankle and it had been reconstructed several times over the years. And then eventually it just fell apart. And the doctor said, well, it's best if we just cut it off. Wow. And it was amazing. It was it was certainly the most painful time of my life. One of the most difficult periods I've ever gone through. But it was it was a pruning away of something that had been bringing me down my entire life and holding me back. Mm. And then, of course, I had to go through this painful thing called physical therapy and occupational therapy. Yeah. And I am experiencing all of this pain, but it is not pain that is to my detriment. It is a purifying pain. It's a pain that's helping me grow a pain that's helping me live a new life. Mm. That's the pain of Gehenna. That is really interesting. And I'm I'm looking forward to unpacking that more when we get to kind of how you talk about what, in your words, is uh, purgatorial universalism. Yeah. Because I do think it's important. A lot of people, I believe, listening to this and folks in our spaces have experienced pain that was mm. designed to be to their detriment. Right. I'm, I'm thinking about like abuse. I'm thinking about, um, you know, horrific things like that. Right. And at the same time, I think that we can get into modes where we think, where we think that any kind of pain is automatically like that. Right. Mm. And I appreciate what you said, because I mean, I, the example I use that is not, you know, maybe as serious as what happened to you is just going to the gym. You know, like when I, if I'm working out, uh, I don't want to work out a lot of times. Uh, it's painful. I don't like being on the stair stepper for 30 <laughs> minutes, but I know the pain is helping my body grow and become stronger, right? Or if I dislocate my shoulder and a doctor has to pop it back in place, that's painful, but again, it's to make things better. So I, I, just, I appreciate you kind of calling that out and mentioning that all pain or even to a degree suffering doesn't automatically have to lead to a place where we become worse on the other side of that. In many cases, it can lead to a place where we actually grow because of that. So I appreciate that. Absolutely. And sometimes it's necessary, you know, in order Mm. to get to the next stage of our life, in order to experience the thing, the blessings that are there for us to experience, you kind of have to walk through that a little bit. Yeah. I have no doubt that on the other side of the grave, some of us will have more rehabilitation that's required than others. I think of my sainted grandma, and I imagine, you know, she'll probably do 20 minutes on a gazelle and she'll be good to go 
you know, other folks, myself, some politicians, I can imagine, um, <laughs> will be there for quite a while, you know, and we'll be doing some yeah. burpees yeah. and doing some other stuff that's it's going to be really tough. <laughs> no, I appreciate you sharing that. All right. So so we're two down. We got two more to go. And then we're going to get into more of, of what you think about with the afterlife. So we went through Sheol. Yes. We went through Gehenna. I think next on the list for me is going to be Hades. What, what, give me give me Hades. Hades is literally the version of the underworld that comes to us from Greek mythology. Okay. And this is just the New Testament writers writing in Greek, trying to make a connection with their audience, mm. trying to explain something that they would be familiar with. And so they use this very specific term from Greek pagan religion, and it's not an attempt to develop some new idea about eternal torment so much as it is about saying, hey, in Christianity, we believe that there is a life after death just like you do. Mm. You know? mm -hmm. And you can't. And the point is, is to not not take it so literally, because, well, first of all, what do we expect? If you're familiar at all with Greek mythology, you know, you know, who lives in Hades? Well, the three headed dog Cerberus. Do we think he's down there waiting for us? <laughs> do we think we're going to have to cross the river Styx? And if you if you want to take it that seriously, OK, Hades is not a place of eternal torment. There are nice places in the kingdom of Hades. Mm. There are the Elysian fields, which is a meadow with white flowers where, you know, great people hang out. There are places for those who are getting over and recuperating from long lost love. There, there are all these different little lands in Hades. So mm. to just look at it and say, oh, no, what 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 they meant was this fiery place of eternal torment is ridiculous. And, and it's not taking the Bible seriously enough. Mm. OK, last one. Let's knock it out of the park real quick. Tartarus. What's that one talking about? Tartarus only has one to from what I've found, at least. Only one mention in the entire New Testament. Is it in Peter? That's what I'm yeah, the impression of. Yeah, it's in Second Peter. Yeah, yeah. and it's one not mention. even used as a noun. It's used as a verb. Tartarus is the deepest, darkest place in Hades, and it is a place where the Olympian god Zeus threw the Titan Kronos from uh, Mount Olympus all the way down into Tartarus. Mm. And so in Second Peter, Peter's talking about God throwing Satan and his demons down, and he says he tartarized them. <laughs> he threw them like Zeus tartarized the, the, the Titan gods. So it, wow. again, you can't really use that to try to build the case for this eternal torment. Hello, my name is Sharon Roggio. I am the director of 1946, the movie. We know that there is harmful rhetoric that seeps into our culture that sometimes comes from our church buildings. We know the impact of fundamentalist 
theology that is designed to uplift certain groups and marginalize others. We also recognize that this is an issue that needs to be dealt with with care and empathy as oftentimes it is our loved ones who uphold these beliefs. And that is why I support Project Amplify. Never in our lives have we been more inundated with misinformation and disinformation, but Project Amplify provides good information and a middle ground to give us some hope around a lot of this misguided information and beliefs. If you'd like to help Project Amplify, please consider a donation today and you can find out more with the click in the link below. Thank you. Okay, so we just went through in uh, under 20 minutes here, you know, four different words that get translated into hell in the Bible that it turns out none of which have direct connections to what's probably baked into our image in our mental you know, consciousness of, yeah, you're on fire forever in like a really hot oven where it's dark and you're just roasting like like a rotisserie chicken <laughs> for all of eternity, right? Yeah. So I, I think that's really important yeah. because I know for a fact <laughs> a lot of people are still working out how they hold to the idea of biblical authority, right? I mean, and frankly, I'm still working through that. I think the Bible can be authoritative in the Christian stuff. I think it needs to be to a degree, but I'm sure. starting to understand more and more the difference between maybe like what's actually Absolutely. in the Bible versus what I've been taught is in the Bible and like where the where the separation is. I think that this is a really good little crash course on on a big topic that I was always taught the Bible is super clear on. It turns out maybe it's not nearly as clear, at least in the term of, of how I've been, I've been told to understand them. That's really helpful. Yeah, the way some people read the Bible is, is almost as if there is another book that the authors of the Bible mm. were referring yeah, yeah. to as they wrote their book, right? That, that somewhere there is a book that has all of this geography of the afterlife in it and yes. a very streamlined theological system that they're right. using as a reference yeah. as they write their various scriptures. None of that is true, okay? The Bible is full of people trying to figure it out, right? They have revelation from God that they're trying to interpret and apply to their own contexts. And in order to do that, they use symbols and images and poems and songs and all of these amazing and beautiful terms that are so enigmatic and so mysterious and we actually do the Bible a disservice when we try to flatten it out and say, no, it's a system. I, I call it the bureaucracy of the afterlife. And actually, no one was better than that, by mm. the way, than the founder of my own spiritual tradition, John Wesley, who founded the, the Methodist movement. He took all those different words for the afterlife in in. In his conception of what happens to us after we die, hmm. he has seven wow. different compartments. Seven. And you move from one to the other. These people go here. Those people go there. And it's some of the worst stuff he ever wrote. And what he's doing is he loves the Bible so much, but at that particular point, he didn't know how hmm. to interpret the poetry that is associated with the afterlife. And he felt like he was held by his tradition 
to uphold this idea of eternal torment and divine wrath. And in order Mm. to do that, he had to tie himself up into this bureaucratic knot with these seven different compartments. Luckily, none of that made it through to contemporary Methodist doctrine, thankfully, um, but it is there. That's good to know. I never knew about that. And you learn something new every day. Let's get into your term. All right. Purgatorial universalist. I've interviewed Keith Giles. I've talked about maybe this. I've heard the phrase called you know, ultimate reconciliation or something like that. The idea sure. for Keith being that that through Christ, all things are reconciled. All things you know, are redeemed. And one of my pushbacks with him was like, I said, Keith, it's not that I don't love the idea. I get that. I just don't know where like the justice part comes in because I don't want to share a hammock with Hitler. That's what I told him in my interview. You know, I'm like the idea of like, well, good thing Hitler made it through. You know, it's like, oh, I don't know. Like that just seems unfair given like what Hitler did. Right. So it's like, what, what is your framework for purgatorial universalism? What is it? And then let's get into some of that. Well, let me start off. I think the first little inkling I had toward this brand of universalism came from Star Wars. Oh, when I saw Return of the Jedi, when I was 12 years old, I got the the three cassette original trilogy (laughs) for Christmas. Love it. And I remember I remember the day it was December 26th, 1995. And I watched Return of the Jedi. And I was blown away. Mm. Because something happened in that movie that I had never seen happen before. The villain of this whole thing is the dark and the sinister Darth Vader. And he's just this evil, malevolent dude, dark side of the force, the whole thing. And at the end of the story, Darth Vader, spoiler alert. Thank you. Is redeemed by his son, Mm. Luke. And I flipped Mm. out. Because I had never seen that happen before. And it was such a more complete ending than any other movie I had seen before. Where, you know, usually the bad guy gets coming to him, you know, what he deserves. And he falls down the pit or he gets shot in the chest. He ends like Darth Maul episode one, right? He's cut in half and he's down the pit split in two, right? Yeah. Yeah. But to see that redemption happen was actually a more complete victory. Mm. I think that, here, here's the thing, the love of God, as it was communicated to us by Jesus, who told us that God isn't just a God, but is a, a father, a mother, a parent, you know, whatever word you need to use. The love of a parent is so big and so wide that at the end of time, if there is any remainder outside of that love, if there is any irreconcilable little piece that remains unreconciled to the whole, that remains on the outside, Mm. then that victory is incomplete. Mm. Ultimately, that God would be unable to reconcile and redeem those Darth Vaders. And that's not the God that we see in the New Testament, I don't believe. Mm. You know, whether you're talking about Paul, who says, you know, 
just as the whole world fell as the result of one man, Adam, so the whole world will be made alive in one man, Jesus Christ, right? Romans 5.18, 1 Corinthians 15.22. You have Peter in Acts chapter 3 talking about my favorite word in any language for all time, the word apocatastasis or apocatastasis, mm. as David Bentley Hart says it. The idea, and, and essentially what apocatastasis means, is the end will be like the beginning. Everything will be brought back together. Everything will be unified. Everything will be made whole. We're given a warning by Jesus that we have to settle our accounts now while we can, or else we'll be handed over and thrown into prison until we pay the very last penny. Remember that mm -hmm. scripture? He's saying that there is a way to pay that debt off. And that that debt, that payment of that debt, is what I call purgation. It is the burning away of the dross of the soul. When you say, I'm filtering everything you're saying through my evangelical lens. So I have that way I have, sure. I have the right understanding of terms that you're saying. When you say that I can pay the debt, right? Are you talking about I said fuck too many times and God's like, hey, you said fuck too many times. So we got to pay off that debt. Or like, what are we actually talking about? Like, what is the sin part of this in your worldview? Is it like whenever we do harm to another human? What, what, what is that debt that we're talking about? That's a good question. I would be loath to define sin or debt or whatever too closely. Sure. I think the worst sins are the sins that we commit against one another mm. and against our living world. Yeah. Right. And for that, I think there's all something to be paid. And in some of that payment happens on this side of the grave. Right. I think our inhumanity to one another, our refusal to love like God loves and to show the kind of tender care to each other that God shows to us. That's, I, I only, I really, I only ask that because I know for a lot of us, the word sin just automatically had certain connotations tied to things that I'm mm -hmm. like, I'm not sure if those things are necessarily like, like what we're talking about here. So I just wanted to get your perspective on that. You know, like, for example, I, I, yeah, it was often yeah. used like, well, if you're gay, you know, like that will just, that's the debt that you owe. Oh, right. I, I, I agree. Right. But for a yeah. lot of us, we hear those things. I'm like, okay, I want to unpack that with my guests and help the audience know like, hey, we don't mean it. Maybe how you used to hear it back in the, in the conservative fundamentalist days that we were all part Absolutely. of, you know, no, that, that's no. really good. We're talking about the refusal to love. I love that. We're talking about the refusal to share. Yeah. The refusal to make space for other people. Yeah. That's, that's the heart of what sin is. Right? I think it's a, I, I love that. The refusal to love. I mean, that's just a really, you know, concise way of putting it. So, okay. So is there a difference between what I understand purgatory to be and this view of, uh, I forgot how you, you didn't say purgatory. You said something close to it. What was the term? Yeah. Purgatorial universalism or, or purgation. Purgation. Yeah. Is it, yeah. I mean, I, I, again, I'm, I'm not the, the academic here. I'm, I'm not the sure. author. My understanding of purgatory comes more of like the Catholic idea of like, I guess, yeah. like in a holding period until you go one of two directions. I don't really know. I'm a little ignorant on that. Oh, what are okay. we talking about here for purgation in, in this view? It's, it's funny that if you if you ask a Catholic, show me purgatory in the Bible, they'll actually point to a lot of the, the passages 
um, Protestant Christians would use to talk about hell. <laughs> right? <laughs> That's funny. Because I think they're pretty close, honestly, to what it is. For, for Catholics, you have a, a few different kind of classifications of people. Again, more bureaucracy after you die, right? There are the condemned who just go to hell, and that's fine. And then you have the saints, and the saints reach a kind of maximum holiness in this life. This, this is for Catholicism, understand. Sure. And so the saints are up in heaven with Jesus, which is why you can ask them to pray for you and do stuff like that. Most people in the Catholic conception who are a part of the Catholic Church will spend some time in a place called purgatory. And if you're in purgatory, if you're a Catholic, that's a really good place to be because it means you're not in hell. Hmm. And it means that you just have some sin that has to get burnt away in order for you to make your way toward everlasting bliss with God. Hmm. I just kind of change that a little bit and say, no, actually, no one's condemned. No one is lost. No one is cursed. In fact, we all have something that kind of needs to be burned away hmm. and that our journey toward God will continue after this life. Hmm. Okay. That is really helpful. So really, you're someone who would be in the more universalist camp, uh, but this like position yeah. of maybe first needing to be in this place where you're refined to be able to be with unified with the creator. Is that kind of the vibe? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. In, in my, my position is that the quote unquote fire of hell is the fire of the Holy Spirit. Mm. It is the same fire. It is the fire that sanctifies us, the, the fire that makes us holy, the, the fire that changes our hearts. It's the same fire. It's the fire that, that persuades us to love, right? If, if sin yeah. is the refusal to love. That woos us to God. Yeah. That pulls us, huh. that cracks the heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. So I guess, you know, I have to ask the question I, I asked Keith that, that you already know it's coming. You know, like, I mean, I just have a hard time with like the people who have done like the, the so much harm on this earth. Sure. Like having the ability to yeah. enter. Like I, I do think I'm totally just giving you my thoughts in real time here. Yeah. I'm I'm more persuaded by the annihilationist perspective solely because of that. I think that the idea of universal reconciliation is much more beautiful. Ultimately, I think it actually makes more sense about the nature of God. Ultimately, I cannot get over the the select few humans, right, who have done such a disproportionate amount of evil on the world that have either killed so many, sure. et cetera. So, like, what are your thoughts on that? How do you see some of those people in universalism? I think I have trouble with that, too. Mm. The idea of the salvation of you know, the Hitlers of the world or the terrorists of the world or the politicians I don't like. Sure. Drives me crazy, yeah. you know, but that is all the more evidence that I have not, my heart has not yet been changed enough that I don't see them as God sees them because these are still God's children, right? These are still beings who carry the image of God, no matter what kind of darkness they've done, no matter what they have committed. 
there is still a part of them that retains the essence of the divine at the deepest part of who they are. And it, it is that essence that simply cannot be snuffed out. Mm. And when they are redeemed, it's going to make that victory so much sweeter because the victory of God will be complete and the justice, the true justice, will be universal. Do I have permission to push you on this a little bit? Is that okay? Yeah. I enjoy I enjoy this kind of dialogue. It's important to me. Yeah. Do you think it's possible? I, I have two things to say about this. My first question yeah. is, do you think it's possible for someone to forfeit the image of God that's stamped on them? Like, can someone become so depraved in their mind and do, and do actions that are so terrible that they ultimately forfeit, you know, what makes that image of God stamped? Like, can they give it back, essentially, is what I'm asking? No, and here's why. Okay. Paul, Paul talks about Jesus Christ saving sinners of whom I am the worst, mm. right? He wasn't lying. Paul was a really, really bad dude mm. from what we can tell. It seems that he was trying to choke the infant church in the cradle, right? Right. He was not just a persecutor of the church. He was the first persecutor of the church. And by his order, who knows how many men, women, and children met their end, yet God still redeemed him. And God gave him a place in his kingdom, gave him a job to do, set a gospel upon his heart, and put him to work. Hmm. It's also the same reason why I, I don't believe in capital punishment. Because the evidence, as I see it from the New Testament, is that God never gives up. That, that God's love is so big and so powerful that it refuses to let us sit and fester forever in our sin. So that's that's why I ultimately, even though in my my human mind, can't imagine how some people could be saved. Right. I can't imagine how they could possibly make restitution. I can't imagine how their soul can be redeemed. Nevertheless, I am challenged by the gospel that they are still worthy of God's love and that when God sends his, his word and his love into the world, it does not come back void to him. Yeah, I, I think the other point I wanted to make, and this is something I really wrestle with, Hitler is the, maybe the ultimate Godwin's law piece, figurehead to take sure. in this example, right? You know, a man who is responsible for the death of millions of Jews, I heard, I heard a rabbi one time say, if heaven is where Hitler is, that's my hell. Like the idea being like, hey, maybe it's nice for you to say that, yeah, God redeems Hitler, but he wasn't committing genocide against your people. You know, it was my people yeah. that he committed genocide against, right? And I, I think that's when I first heard it, I was like, that's a fair point. Like, do I, am, do I even have the authority or the ability to say, you know, ultimately that, hey, well, under my worldview, no matter what, I'm convinced that you know Hitler's in heaven, so. uh Yep, take it up with God kind of vibe. Like, what's your thoughts on no. that piece? Does, does, does that make sense <laughs> yeah. what I'm asking? Yeah, okay. no, I get you. Okay. I get you. I think the main thing is, is that the move there is not to question the healing power of God, but the move is to respect the depth of the pain yes. that the Jewish people have felt. Yeah. 
Does that make sense? 100%. And to understand that that is a deeper pain and a generational pain that has gone on for centuries that most of us just don't have access to. Right. And so my approach to someone who said that to me would not be to say, hey, screw you. Like, you don't understand how big God's love is, <laughs> right? Right, right. right. exactly. Like, it wouldn't be to argue in that moment. It would be perhaps to ask more questions and to learn more about the depth of that pain and to leave it at that. Because ultimately, and here's the thing, when when you when you think about God's love the way I do, it doesn't really matter what people think mm. or what their opinions are, because your salvation is not bound up in what you believe to be true about the world. It rests only in God's love for you. Yeah. So I don't have to win any arguments. I just don't have to. I don't have to convince anyone of my position. What the way I framed the Holy Hell book is to be a help for those who are wrestling with the trauma of being told their loved ones are burning forever. Yeah. And and there's actually a, a flip side to that that rabbi's way of of speaking about that that I talk about in the book, and I I think about it like this: that what am I to do if you know I have children? My wife and I don't have children, so I'll use my wife as an example. What if I died and went to heaven or whatever, and my wife died and went to hell? How then could heaven be heaven for me mm. if knowing that she was being tormented forever and right. ever? Right. Thomas Aquinas and John Calvin would say, oh, actually, the people in heaven can see the people burning in hell and they praise God for it because they can see that it's all part of the revealed plan, so on and so forth. That is not consistent with what I see in the New Testament. Mm. Yeah. That is not consistent with the love that I see there. That's ridiculous. So if 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 she fills that role for me, she's kind of like a heaven buddy. Mm. She's someone for whom if I'm going to heaven, she kind of has to be there, too. Yeah. You know? Right. Right. And I know for her, her mom and her dad and her sister and her brother and her friends, they're her heaven buddies. And those people have heaven buddies. Mm. And it is a network of relationship that pulls out in all directions and I think eventually encompasses all of humanity. Mm. I love that. I That's helpful. That is, a, I think, a really thought-provoking answer for us to be thinking about. Yeah, I mean, this is this conversation was very enlightening on several different levels. I mean, we kind of covered some of the yeah. theology. We covered some of the harder questions that I've always had about, well, now what you call purgatorial universalism. And you wrote the book helping people who might have serious trauma around the idea of, well, they weren't Christian, so therefore they are, you know, burning in hell right now and you have to accept Absolutely. that. I think that's really important. I mean, one of the one of the moments in my own personal life that really got me thinking was was when my brother told me, Hey, I guess God hasn't predestined me. I guess I guess I'm just burning in hell forever one day. And I thought to myself, and I'm going to be happy with that. Like, like no. so my my version of heaven is where I'm in bliss and my brother is burning forever. And I'm like, cool, God, you're holy and good. Also, God can get all, all of this happening so God can get glory. That makes no sense. That's, That's not love. Yeah, it sounds crazy. Well, the way I tell people to think about it is imagine you had a really great childhood. 
and your parents loved you and they cared for you and they told you bedtime stories at night and they came to all your baseball games or your volleyball games or whatever. And it was, it was fantastic childhood. Mm. And then as you grow up, you come to learn that that whole time after they tucked you into bed at night, they snuck down to the basement where they had a secret dungeon where they were torturing your brothers and sisters that you didn't even know you had. Mm. How would that change your relationship toward your parents? Would you still be able to hang out with them on Thanksgiving? Would you still come over to the house and watch the game? No, it wouldn't. Yet we expect people to praise our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, all the while thinking that somewhere in his basement, mm. we have brothers and sisters who are chained up and being tortured. That's ridiculous. The cognitive dissonance of that is too much for a lot of people to handle. Yeah. And they bear the psychological scars of that throughout their lives. Yeah. Well, listen, the book comes out February 27th. It's called Holy Hell, A Case Against Eternal Damnation. Derek, I can't thank you enough for making time. Are, do you have a public presence? Do you have a social media channel? Where can folks follow you? I, I'm, I'm on Facebook. People can find me on Facebook. I, I also actually used to run a podcast that is still up about the danger of conspiracy theories and Christianity oh, called oh. Uh, Crossover Q. <laughs> I love that. I did 10 That's episodes great. of that and hopefully helped a lot of people. But as you know, it's still a problem, right? It's oh, still I a know. Problem. But we got some resources on there. If people are dealing with that in their families, check out Crossover Q. Otherwise, the book is holy hell. Awesome. Derek, I appreciate your time. Keep in touch and we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Tim. 